Morning, everyone. I'd love to give you the reassurance that today is going to be a humping, good, encouraging, uh, hang your hat on, amazing message of just goodness and greatness. Um, but we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, so that's not going to happen. In 1983, 1983, I went and watched a movie that was, at the time, probably one of my all-time favorite movies I've ever seen, 1983. And there was this one line in the movie that I remember to this day. It's a trap. Quoted by Eric Bomserfeld, and I'm sure you all know who Eric is. And that famous line, it's a trap. Anybody remember that line by Eric? You probably know him as his character in the movie, Admiral Akbar. Still don't have most of you. Okay. This was the sixth movie, the sixth episode, I should say, in the Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi. And immediately towards the end of the movie, as a climax, Admiral Akbar had the entire Alliance fleet come out of hyperspace at the moon of Endor, the forest moon of Endor. And in front of them was this half-made, half-built, still under construction Death Star. And Luke Skywalker and his entire um, company was down on the moon trying to tear down or trying to... Um, lower the force field that was around the Death Star. Now, I don't mind giving you the spoilers, because this came out in 1983, and if you've not seen Return of the Jedi by now, two things. One, no donuts for you today, okay? And two, oh, we, we've got to talk. We have to talk, because this, this has so much good imagery in it from uh, so many things. So, he declares it's a trap because as he comes out of hyperspace with the entire Alliance fleet with him, he notices that the shield is not down. And if they went to attack the Death Star, it would be slaughter. So he noticed something was off. And when something was off, he made a 180-degree turn and attacked the rest of the Empire's fleet that was sitting in wait. But he noticed it was a trap. It's a trap. This really does have something to do with our message this morning. I'm just not talking about Star Wars lore because I, I'm excited about Star Wars. But this really does have a point with our sermon this morning. Now, if you remember from last week, we gave a really good working definition of what wisdom is. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom has nothing to do with age. Wisdom has nothing to do with intelligence. Wisdom has nothing to do with wealth or status or fame or fortune. Wisdom, when we're talking about God's wisdom, especially that wisdom that Solomon had, it's understanding God's truth and correctly applying it in our lives, in every situation we have. So wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. By the end of the series on Ecclesiastes, you will know this definition like the back of your hand. Spoiler alert, every message will start with this. Every message. So the quicker you learn it and say, Tim, we already know it. I won't have to put this slide in anymore. What is wisdom? Close your eyes. Don't look. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. We will learn that and we will digest it and we will make it part of our own desire 
to be wise before God as we correctly apply biblical knowledge. Now, what we're going to see today, and it's a trap, what we're going to see today is that chasing after and amassing treasures and things that are earthly is like trying to grab a hold of smoke, vapor, or steam. It is fleeting, it is vanity, empty, uselessness, and meaningless. So as we think that fame is what we need, fortune is what we need, uh, good health is what we need, attractive spouse is what we need, if we think that all of these things that the world says are good and important, if we try to grab a hold of it, we will soon realize it really is nothing. It's like vapor and smoke and steam. You try to grab it, it disappears. It, it's quickly fleeting. It, it has some sense of physical form, but it goes away rather quickly when you approach it. It disappears on us. It's not lasting, it's not fulfilling, and it certainly is meaningless in the end. Now, at the very start of, uh, of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we see in the first three verses that we're looking at this morning, 12 through 14, that Solomon has to give his credentials. Now, he doesn't come out and say, this is Solomon speaking, but he gives us great information. I'm the king of Jerusalem, the son of David. I'm super wise. I've got lots of riches. It's exactly who Solomon is. But he wants to give us some credentials at the very beginning of this so that we rightly understand he's speaking with authority. He knows what he's talking about. This isn't just some fly-by-night guy who's writing down his little Aesop fable of wisdoms, little jewels, but this is someone who really has God's hand in his wisdom. And so he starts just in those three verses, verse 12, uh, 13, and 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now Solomon ruled about 30-some years, maybe close to 40 years, give or take. And I applied my heart. Look at what he wanted to do. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He admits, my whole passion, my heart, my desire was to find out everything that we do. I wanted to be a renaissance man in that I had knowledge of everything that's going on. How to fix a car, I could fix a car. How to shoe a horse, he could shoe a horse. Well, he didn't fix a car, I'm just saying that. How to shoe a horse, he could do that. How to, how to build a fire, how to build a camp, how to build a temple, he did that. How to extend his borders, how to be a masterful technician when it came to military forces, Solomon was your guy. How to decide which child is this? Super good at figuring out the truth and figuring out men's motives. He knew everything that life had to offer, and he excelled at doing it and figuring it out. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. All of the things that God has provided for us to engage in, Solomon basically says, all of this, we're just spinning our wheels. It doesn't get us anywhere. So you know this fact. So you know that fact. So you know how to do this. You know how to do that. In the end, it doesn't matter. It's just busy work. It's actually distractions from what God has truly called us to do. And that is to lay up our treasure in heaven. 
with him and our relationship with him, not with the relationship of stuff. And then he ends these credentials in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon had no limits when it came to could he financially do this. He had all the financial means that you could dream of. You think Elon Musk is rich with billion dollars? Solomon eclipsed that a hundred times over in his day. Relationships? Oh my goodness, the guy had over 600 wives. Trust me, it's a curse, not a blessing. A blessing is to have one wife. Kids? I cannot imagine how many kids he ended up having. He saw it all. He didn't dream about it. He experienced the excess of life. The drinking, the eating, the parties, the engaging intellectual conversations. He had it. He had the best of the best surrounding him for 30 years. He knew what he was talking about when he said, there's nothing new under the sun. I've seen it all. I've experienced it all. I know every emotion. I know every passion. I know every entertainment value there is. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've lived it in excess. And all of it in the end. Behold. It's this word that says, I need to grab your attention and wake you up. Behold. Understand. See. Notice. All is vanity and striving after the wind. It's vanity. Uselessness. Not satisfying. He then, in the following verses in chapter 1, I think has a moment of confession. He has these great statements at the beginning of chapter 1 about vanity and uselessness of the things of this life and the meaninglessness of the daily activity that we put so much energy on, even put it in our calendar and spend lots of money on. He goes, in the end, it's not as important as your relationship with God. It doesn't matter that you had fun doing it, that other people have fun doing it, or it's the latest fad. In the end, it disappears. It disappears. So he says in a matter of confession through verse 15 through verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's a uselessness in trying to make things right in your eye, in your opinion, with your expertise and ability. It just it won't work out. It doesn't matter how many times you pull the weeds out of that garden, out of that lawn, there'll be another weed. It happens no matter how many times they patch the asphalt and fill in all the potholes. It doesn't matter because next week there's another one and another one and another one. And it continually happens over and over and over again, not just for your lifetime, but for the existence of humanity. It has always happened. You're not the first one to experience car trouble. They had horse trouble back in the day. You're not the first one to wonder, what should we eat tonight? 
That's plagued humanity forever. What do I wear? That's been a question everyone has asked. What do I wear? Who do I marry? That's been a question everyone has asked. The pursuit of the dollar has always been there. The pursuit of fame, power, beauty, living longer has always been there. The pursuit of the perfectly cooked steak has always been there. The pursuit of the best pizza, it has always been there. Always. And it will never cease to happen. He says in verse 16, and this is where it gets very personal, I said in my heart. So here's a little glimpse in the wisest man that ever lived. In his heart, what is he thinking? He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. True, because God asked him, I'll give you anything you want, ask me. And at the age of 20, he says, I want to be wise. We saw that last week. What an amazing character that God had established in his life, probably through his father David, that as a young man he wanted nothing more than wisdom. And God granted that to him. And he's saying, I've acquired great wisdom, great knowledge, great understanding, great application of it. This is towards the end of his life. Because I've, I've ruled and reigned as a king, and God has blessed me in that, and I've had insight into things I no, normally wouldn't have had and God gave me that insight. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And madness in this sense is not like craziness, but it's just um, uncontrolled passions. Perhaps is the best way to explain that. He's experienced all those uncontrolled passions where we may reserve ourselves because of whatever reasons. Solomon didn't have to reserve himself because he was king. If he wanted to do that, he did that. If he wanted to do this, he did this. If he wanted to eat that or wear that, that's what he did. He was unrestrained, not just because he was king, but he had the wealth to back it up and the power to back it up. He continues and says, I perceived that this is also, is but striving after wind. What is striving after wind like? He's mentioned that twice now. Striving after wind. Have you ever tried to catch wind? I mean, no, just catch it, hold it, then when you open your hands, it leaves again. No, you can catch air. But can you catch wind, and when you open your hands, the wind just keeps going and doing itself, doing its stuff? No, you can't. Try grabbing that, holding on to it, picturing it and keeping it in that state. You can't. It's futile. It's useless, it's meaningless, it can't happen. And so Solomon is saying, all of these things that I gave myself to in excess, including wisdom, it amounts to nothing. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I think Solomon got to the point in his life, being the wisest man ever to live up to that time and in the future 
I think he saw all of this. Wisdom, correctly applied biblical knowledge, still did not satisfy him. It's a relationship with God that satisfies, not knowledge about God or understanding how God applies to our life, but knowing God that matters. Knowing God gives usefulness to our life. Knowing him personally and intimately. But just simply gaining knowledge and gaining understanding and application is not an end to itself. In fact, he looks at those pursuits of wisdom and knowledge and there's much frustration in it. And he says it increases sorrow. How can knowledge increase sorrow? How can knowledge increase sorrow? You know, the sun is uh, basically a, a fusion reactor. It's nuclear in its power. And I'm told through science that eventually the sun will die out. And it will become cold. And it will become a dwarf star. And well before that happens, all life on earth will end. Because we can't sustain life without the sun. Did you know the sun was going to end? I mean, it may not come up tomorrow. It may end. We know scientifically the sun will stop its radiant heat and its light. It's going to end. Well, if the sun's going to end, what's the point? I mean, life won't be able to exist anymore here on earth. Should we just stop what we're doing and, you know what, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're probably going to die because I heard that the sun's going to end. Why doesn't that concern you? Because no, no one here is freaking out. You know the sun will end. It will stop. No more light, no more heat. No more growing. No more seasons. No more rain, no more wind. That doesn't bug you at all? It doesn't concern you that you're just going to wake up one day and the sun's going to be gone because it's going to fizzle out and all that re nuclear reaction's going to end? No one seems very concerned about that. Why are you not concerned about it? Because you probably also heard the other side of that story, that it may be millions and millions and millions and millions of years before that ever gets to that point, even though it's losing somewhere around eight feet every second in diameter. Around eight feet. That's how huge the sun is. But as you start down that scientific road of learning more and more and more and more, about all of life, all of a sudden you are filled with what modern day we call WebMDism. Is anyone familiar with WebMD? Yeah, it's where you type in on, on WebMD all your symptoms and it tells you that basically you're dying of cancer. And you probably have an operable brain tumor that's going to explode at any second. Say goodbye to your loved ones. Oh, I have a lot of personal stories about this. And I'm going to pass them by. <laughs> the more you read that stuff, the more you start to believe, oh, maybe that ache in my back. It's not because I was pulling weeds, but I've got an extra bone growing out and it's going to pierce my lung and all of a sudden I won't be able to breathe. And I know it's a rare condition. It's only happened once in the last, you know, 5,000 years in medical history, but... I'm sure I've got it. And we become paranoid because we're reading all this information and freaking out about it. I think Solomon is 
figuring out something that we should learn from. When he says, gaining all this knowledge just puts a weight and burden upon you, like you are searching WebMD every day for symptoms that you're feeling. There's no end to it, and it produces great, great sorrow. So Solomon gives us a suggestion in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 8. Here's his suggestion, and to summarize it on our slide, it says, lighten up, laugh it off, have a drink, put your nose to the grindstone, treat yourself, YOLO, you only live once. Well, let's see how that works out for him. Starting in verse 1. I said in my heart, now remember, this is based on what he's already said in chapter 1, where there's a lot of, I gain all this stuff and it's useless. It's like striving after the wind, trying to control it and maintain it. Can't happen. So he says in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he pursues pleasures. But behold, this was also vanity, uselessness, fleeting, not real, has no substance, just seeking after pleasures. And if there was something that characterized our culture and our society today, it is seeking after pleasures. Whatever makes you feel good, go ahead and do it. Don't let people judge you. If you want to dress that way, act that way, treat others that way, just do it. If it makes you feel good, then it's got to be right. Solomon had every feel-good pleasure you could imagine. And he comes to the conclusion with wisdom, correctly applied biblical knowledge, that the pursuit of pleasure doesn't satisfy. But behold, this was also vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? He looked at the common things in life, laughter, jokes, fun, happiness, and all these guilty pleasures, and it doesn't satisfy. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly, just silliness, till I might not see what was good for the children of men to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. Drinking, wines, drugs, whatever that guilty pleasure may be that takes your mind off of real life for the moment, it doesn't satisfy the soul. It's not the answer. The answer is not found in comedy. The answer is not found in drama. The answer is not found in drugs. The answer is not found in money. The answer is not found in fame. The answer is not found in beauty. The answer is not found in relationships with each other. It's not even found in family relationships. Eternal, satisfying goodness of soul. He continues, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools with which to water the forest of growing trees. He was industrious. He was unlimited when it came to what he could build and create and make for himself with beauty. 
If your car's going off, that might be, just double check. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house, and I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He had everyone to do his bidding. Not only was he king, but he amassed for himself slaves. Slaves even born within his own house. He was unstoppable. He could accomplish anything he wanted. Anything. Way more than we could. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Understatement of the entire book, many concubines, and the delight of the sons of man. What did he not have? He had everything. He had everything the world wishes for. If there was a genie in a bottle and you rubbed it and you got three wishes, Solomon already had all that. And he had it in spades. He had all that the world had to offer with pleasures and property and stuff and beauty. He had everything. And his conclusion with the wisdom that God gave him was none of it mattered. And I know that is really hard for us to understand and believe that none of it mattered. Come on, it has to make life easier. And his conclusion already, it didn't make life easier. It was more complicated and vexing and filled with sorrow. It didn't make life easier. It made it more frustrating and more obvious that the things of this world cannot satisfy the soul. And there is a reason, not in this text, why it doesn't satisfy our soul. Because our soul is made for one thing. To have a relationship with God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Our soul is designed to have a relationship with the triune God. And anything short of that is utter uselessness, meaningless. No matter how many likes that new car might get, no matter how many shares that new song might have, no matter how many parades that sports team may get, no matter how many magazine covers that person is on, no matter how many vacation homes that family has, no matter how many cars are in that garage, no matter how many designer clothes are in that closet, no matter how many fine five-course meals are on your table, no matter if you had the most expensive bottle of wine and the greatest musicians playing at your table, you will go to sleep that night and one day God will require your soul. And you will stand before him bare naked of all those things. None of those things will matter at all. And Solomon saw that, experienced it, and tells us, learn from me. Learn from my pursuit of everything I was given, everything I acquired. It 
is not worth it if it breaks the relationship that you have with God. It is not worth it. And the last few verses of this section in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 9 through 11, I've titled Christian Hedonism or Hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasures. And this is what he has to say starting in verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So during this entire time of lifelong pursuit of stuff and pleasures, he still had this connection with God that he gave him great wisdom and he understood exactly what was going on the whole time. He wasn't being deceived or fooled that he had kind of won the game of life with all of his pursuits. He still had an eye for what God was doing in him. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had ex uh, expended in doing it. And behold, this is his conclusion of his life that had unconstrained pursuit of the things of this world, unconstrained checkbook to accomplish anything he wanted. He said, this is the end. I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, useless, meaningless, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. Jesus says something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus knew that the pursuit of treasures, the pursuit of pleasures, gains you nothing eternally. And in fact, doesn't even gain you anything here on earth because it's not satisfying. It can come and go in a heartbeat. Not just your life, but your stuff can come and go in a heartbeat. It can be here one moment and gone the next. All that wealth can be here and then gone. All that glorious food is here and then gone. All those beautiful homes and possessions are here and then gone. They don't produce anything lasting but frustration and vexation and confusion and sorrow. So we are called to lay up treasures in heaven. And we're looking, we'll be looking at that theme throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So this is not the only time we're going to be talking about what is a treasure in heaven. I don't understand fully what a treasure in heaven is because it's not gold, it's not wealth, it's not fame and fortune. So what is treasure in heaven? And believe it or not, if you were here during the book of Hebrews, 
forgot for a second, the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, the author of Hebrews gives us a very quick glimpse into what this treasure of heaven might be. Let me read these verses. And I'm starting in verse uh, 32 of Hebrews chapter 10, just to kind of get the stage, because I love how the author presents and introduces this valued treasure we have in heaven. He says, but recall, okay, remember the former days when after you were enlightened, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So the author is saying, I want you to remember this, that when you became a Christian, when you exercised faith in God and Jesus Christ forgave all of your sins, you still had hardships. You still had a tough life. It was not easy. It was filled with trials and difficulties and sufferings. Sometimes, verse 33, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, made fun of for your faith, ridiculed for your faith, maybe even martyred for your faith. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted, accepted the plundering of your property since you knew. Or this is why you were able to endure those things. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding See, the author of Hebrews understands exactly what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying, amassing all this stuff and pleasures amounts to uselessness, meaninglessness, like vapor and smoke. You can't grab it, it can't keep it. It will not give you lasting joy. And the author of Hebrews connects that and says, you can be filled with suffering and temptations and trials and ridicule and martyrdom, and yet you are still showing compassion and joy towards others. Why? Because you have something far greater than the pleasures of this world, than the stuff of this world, than the entertainment of this world, than the ease of wealth and property and beauty and life. You have something greater. And he's going to point us to that. Throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to point us. It's a relationship that you have with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I can't think after introducing that subject this morning, a better way of celebrating that relationship that we have with God than with baptisms. 